Okay. It's the hammy. It's always the hammy. What's up, y'all? My name is Jordan. I'm a pastor here. Uh, shout out to everybody joining us online. And I am thrilled to be here today standing upright and uh, no longer limping. Uh, that amazing footage you saw just now was from the Jameson Family Olympics that took place a couple of weeks ago. It didn't get as much coverage as what was going on in Tokyo. Uh, but my family got together, as we do every year, for our family reunion. And this year, in keeping up with the times, uh, we decided to have some Olympic games. So we started with the ring toss. I took home a disappointing silver in that event. And uh, we did volleyball and some other things. And then we got to the marquee event, 55-meter dash. Now, I know what you're thinking. Jordan, even though you're turning 40, you exercised great caution, and you stretched, and you prepared, and you trained to run as fast as you could. Now, if you thought that's what I did, you would be wrong. Uh, even though I haven't run fast in a very long time, I just thought that I could do it. Now, Scripture says pride comes before the fall, and that is what you, what you witnessed in that. And I suffered uh, a grade one hamstring pull, uh, trying to run as fast as I could. I saw this question on Twitter. They asked this question, when is the last time you have run as fast as you can? Yeah, it's been like a decade for me, uh, and it wasn't a good idea to do that. So I ended up in physical therapy as a result. And physical therapy is it's a fascinating thing. I've done it a couple times for different injuries. If you've been around Renaissance a little bit, you've heard me tell my infamous pinky story. <laughs> Uh, but physical therapy is fascinating because physical therapy is this mixture of pain and relaxation, right? Like a good physical therapist knows that the area that is affected is painful, but they don't avoid it altogether. They have to engage with it. So there is pain, but they also, they don't push you so hard that you're miserable because it's a pain that's not just meant to give you pain, but it's meant to bring healing. A lot of times, we need to have some necessary discomfort in our lives and actually to push forward towards healing. Another thing that was fascinating about physical therapy that I've, I've always seen this, it's that like, there's an area of your body that hurts, but then the physical therapist is always doing other stuff, even though that's not the main area. So for me, it was my hamstring that was messed up, and when I got there, they were like, oh, your whole like, body is out of order, so they had to fix my back. It's always the back, it's never anything but the back. And they had to adjust that because they said, unless we fix this issue, even though you don't feel it, unless we fix it, you're always going to be re-injuring that hamstring. So the point of pain is not necessarily always the source of your problem. Now, in a lot of ways, uh, praying the Psalms is like a physical, uh, a spiritual physical therapy appointment. What are the Psalms? For those of you who are new, the Psalms are a book in the Bible which are recorded prayers of God's people. And for thousands of years, these are the prayers that people, God's people would sing and to pray. Now, in the last couple of weeks, we've been in the book of Psalms uh, over the summer. And it's so fascinating that whenever you look at a different book of the Bible, some books give us amazing theology, 
right? If you were to want to just read theology and scripture, read Hebrews or Romans, these are beautiful texts that give us the, the, the deep and profound details of all that Christ has come to do. And if you read through Romans or, or, or Hebrews, you'll learn a whole lot of information. But the Psalms are not written for you to learn something. The Psalms are not meant for you to read it and say, oh, that's interesting. The Psalms were written so that you can do them, so that you could be stretched, so that you could be pulled, so that you could be relaxed uh, in such a way. One of the, uh, my hopes and goals, even this summer, uh, and even talking to different people, is that we would encourage people to read the Psalms and to incorporate them into your prayer life. If you want to pray more, this is what you do. Tomorrow morning, wake up and read Psalm 1. You can read a couple of Psalms at, at a time, and what you'll notice not that every single psalm is going to be this amazing encounter with God, but what you'll notice is that slowly but surely, you'll develop a different way to process your emotions. Now, there's a, a couple of ways that we handle our, our emotions, and one thing you'll see in the psalms is that there are all of these real, raw emotions. Now, in some ways, and this is not to pick on religious people, uh, religious people don't really handle emotions well. Like, we like to put scriptures on top of everything. I'll never forget a couple of years ago I was preaching, a number of years ago I was preaching, and I, I talked about how I was just angry at God. And there was moments in my life where I was furious at God and I was disappointed with God. And a woman after service pulled me outside and said, Pastor, don't ever say that you were angry at God. I said, well, you need to read the Psalms, my friend. I can tell you ain't in the book because if you would have read the Psalms, you would see how much anger people and disappointment people actually have with, with God. So on one hand, the Psalms keeps us from the religious approach of throwing scripture on top of uh, our emotions and covering up for it. Or for my non-religious friends uh, who don't want to enter into that, uh, that real emotional space, you just put logic on top of it, that you're not supposed to feel this way, so you ignore it that way. On the other hand, there's a whole group of people who give their emotions the keys to the car, and they say, take us wherever you want to go. And that's a pretty dangerous thing. I think the most dangerous thing about it is this lie in our culture that says, what I feel is the truest thing about me. And the problem with that is we just feel different things all the time. Like one day you feel one thing and the next day you'll feel something powerfully different. One thing that I've, I've incorporated in my own life, and this is a really practical tool for everybody in our life, for any relationship that you're in, friends, family, romantic, whatever it is. One of the things that I've seen is that whenever you have a problem with someone. A lot of times we're waiting for our emotions to make us want to be nice to them or to do something kind for them, but our emotions should never be in the driver's seat. So what I, one thing I've learned is that actions of love will lead to feelings of love. So if there's someone that you don't like, uh, there's someone who's harmed you, if you do something loving toward them, it will lead to feelings of love that will come behind it that our emotions will catch up with the truth and the actions that we do. And the same thing is true in the opposite respect. Actions of hatred, actions of disregard, uh, uh, those lead to feelings of hatred and disregard. So on one end, the Psalms keep us from throwing scripture and theologizing away our emotions. On the other hand, they're a way to pray through and process so that we don't give our emotions full control over the direction of our lives. The, Psalm give us, the Psalms give us a third way, they, they allow us to pray through our emotions. And sometimes these emotions are real and they are difficult. So if you'll notice, 
as you read through the Psalms, and I hope this week you, you read through some Psalms, here's one thing that you're going to notice. You might come to a, a, a Psalm any given day feeling a certain pain, but that location of where the pain is, is not always the source of your issue. So one thing we're going to see today in the scripture of the Psalm today is a lot of times we might be feeling envious or frustrated because of one thing, but envy is not your real issue. The real issue is doubt. The real issue is that you doubt that God cares about you, that God knows what is going on in your life, and that you matter to him. So we'll come to God feeling one thing, but then the Psalms reveal for us, and they show us our real issues. Another thing you might notice is that you might notice yourself being pulled with the right kind of pain. It won't always feel good or all bad, but you'll find yourself pulled and stretched in uncomfortable ways. And when you are done, you will feel the soul adjustment and that healing has begun. So my hope for today is that we would enter into a kind of soul adjustment. And I want to read for us Psalm 73. It's written by a man named Asaph, and here, here's how it starts. God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray. For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Yo, they have an easy time until they die. Their bodies are well fed. They're not in trouble like others. They are not afflicted like most people. Uh, this is a psalm of Asaph, and if you read through the psalms, there's a number of different authors. Uh, a man named David wrote most of these psalms, and Asaph wrote about 10, and this is the beginning of the 10 that he writes. And it starts off with a real confession. Now, Asaph was a priest. He was a Levite, meaning his job was to mediate the presence of God between God and God's people. So this man, his entire life, his entire adult life would have been spent studying scripture, engaging in purity, and doing all of these things to be close and connected to God. Asaph says that there was this event in his life, this thing that happened that was nearly catastrophic to his faith, and it wasn't something big and explosive. It was that he started to look to the left and to the right, and people around him were doing better than he was. He was comparing himself to other people. He was judging God's faithfulness based on what he saw God doing in other people's lives or what God was allowing to happen. Now, this is some really strong language, and I think when we read the first couple of verses, I don't know that we understand the Hebrew metaphor that Asaph is trying to include. So Asaph says, um, I nearly lost my foothold. Now, what Asaph is talking about is not like you're walking down the street and you trip a little bit and you try to play it off so that, that you didn't trip and, and fall. He's saying this, this is a language of someone who's like climbing a mountain. And as they are climbing a mountain, if their foot slips, they go off the cliff and, they, and it's, it's over. Basically what Asaph is saying, this is a way of describing being eternally lost. He's saying, I almost lost my faith. He almost experienced complete destruction of the spirituality of his faith. That's how uh, on the brink he was. So I don't um, know how many of y'all are into the Enneagram. Uh, I'm an Enneagram nerd. Uh, you can guess my type later. Uh, my wife is an Enneagram 7, and for the uninitiated, this means she like loves new experiences, loves them. 
I could wake my wife up at four in the morning and say, hey, you should plan a trip for us to go to Morocco. She would wake up and be like, all right, and she would just take out her phone and start booking, booking trips. So a couple years ago, uh, we were able to go to Utah. I had some meetings uh, out in Salt Lake. And then my wife said, hey, we should tack on some fun things to do while we're in Utah. And I was like, okay, this is Utah. How much fun is to be had uh, in Utah? <laughs> Apparently, there's a lot of fun to be had at these national parks. And one of the national parks we went to, Zion National Park, it really is the most gorgeous, one of the most gorgeous things in God's creation. There were so many times in being there when I was like, yo, God is real. Just by looking at these rocks, I'm like, yo, this... Y'all can have, you can have HGTV all you want. This right here is, is amazing. And um, we did a couple of different things, a couple of different climbs. But the one thing that she really wanted us to do was something called Angel's Landing. Now, I should have known from the, the title of the hike that Angel's Landing was not something that a normal person should do. Uh, it was named after this myth that uh, only angels would land. The only way to get there is to be an angel and to land on top. And essentially, Angel's Landing is this really narrow walkway that you climb for about a half a mile, and on both sides of you, there are a thousand foot drop. Yes. We got to Angel's Landing, and I was like, I want to turn around and punk out. I had on my Nike boots. I was the only, there, only person there from New York with Nike boots on, and... Um, we were the only black people in like a 10-mile radius, and I was like, I can't, I can't be the only black person to turn, I can't do that for my people. So <laughs> we kept on going to Angel's Landing, and while I'm climbing Angel's Landing, I kept on thinking to myself, this ain't how I want to die. So I'm climbing on the ropes, <laughs> and that's like when you know the climb, it's not fun at this point. When you're just thinking, I don't want to die, fun has been, that's not a topic of conversation anymore. And thankfully, since I'm here, obviously, we, we made it. Um, but if my foot would have slipped, it would have been a wrap, right? And to, when we got back from Angel's Landing, we had our community group that next week, and uh, someone in our group said, oh, my coworker's wife died on Angel's Landing. And I was like, really? Thank you for th that detail uh, now to include that. Uh, so this is me saying I don't recommend doing it. It's not a good idea. Although, we got a lot of likes on our Instagram posts from that. <laughs> So if you want to risk your life for likes, this is a good way to do it. When Asaph is saying that his foot nearly slipped, he's describing it like angels landing. He's saying that I almost encountered the destruction of my spiritual life. And what was it that Asaph is saying was the thing that brought him to the brink of destruction? It's when he saw and he started to judge God's faithfulness based on his life circumstances and the circumstances of others, instead of viewing his circumstances through the lens of God's faithfulness. Now, comparison in your life is one of the most deadly and dangerous things that you and I could engage in. In a lot of ways, comparing your life to someone else's and trying to judge God's faithfulness based on how other people are doing it's like climbing Angel's Landing. You can do it for a little bit, but how much longer can you do it until you fall? So in one hand, we see this complaint and this confession, rather, from Asaph as a warning for us that if we're going to live a life that is gospel-centered, we need to root how we judge and view God's faithfulness in something completely different 
than what we see around us. So in 1 Corinthians 15, a man named Paul gives us a little bit of a window into what it means to have a gospel-centered life instead of a comparison-centered life. He says this, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. So this is what Paul says is most important, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul is basically saying every time I hit a new town, every time I, I, I go into a Christian fellowship, I pass on to everybody the most important thing that they should root their lives in, that they should use as a basis to judge God's faithfulness, that God came in the person of Jesus, entered into humanity, and went to the cross on our behalf. And this same God was physically uh, buried and was physically resurrected, raised in all power, and we serve a God to which there is no limit to his power in our lives. Now, that is the basis for which we should root our lives, and this is what the gospel-centered life is all about, and it's much different in comparison. Now, one of my favorite preachers in Atlanta once said it like this, that there is absolutely no win in comparison. Like, there's nothing good that will ever, ever come out of you comparing your life to someone else's. On one end, it might lead to pride, where you feel like you're better than other people. And on the other end, it might just lead to discouragement, like we see here with Asaph, that you feel like God is not giving you what's fair or what's right. And this is all based in us comparing ourselves to other people. So preachers like to give creative things. Uh, so there are the three ends of comparison that I want to talk about for a little bit today. The three ends of comparison. The first is that comparison is rooted in insufficiency. Number one, comparison is rooted in insufficiency. The worst time to go grocery shopping is when you're hungry. Like, don't ever do it. You will buy the worst things that you can ever imagine. Years ago, I went to Costco, and I bought a crate of peaches. And I'm allergic to peaches. I got home after I ate. I was like, yo, why did I buy peaches? They looked mad good when I was looking at them in the store. Uh, the, the reality is um, there is something inside of us that feels insufficient, that makes us look out to other people. So in some ways, this is like a, whenever you find yourself comparing yourself to someone else, in some ways, this is like a warning, like an, a check engine light, that it's a warning that there is some insufficiency inside of you that doesn't feel sufficient and secure, that we need to find something else to make us feel confident in the moment because we're not finding it on our own. There's a quote by a woman named Penelope Douglas. She says like this, we all eat lies when our hearts are hungry. We all eat lies, we eat these joints up. The lie that you're not enough, the lie that you need to do more, the lie that you won't be taken care of. We eat these lies up when our hearts are hungry when our soul is not satisfied, when we don't have a deep rooting in the gospel in these moments to, to, to be anchored in something that is more important, the most important thing, man, you'll eat up the comparison between you and your coworker. When someone else is on Instagram living their best life and you're not, you'll eat that up when you're hungry, when your soul is hungry. So number one, um, comparison is rooted in insufficiency. Number two, comparison is insatiable. Insatiable basically means that there will never be a time when by comparing yourself you say, oh, I've had enough. The writer of Proverbs says it like this, people's eyes are never satisfied. Once you find one person to compare yourself to, you'll just find someone else after you've 
uh, compare them, then you'll find another situation to compare yourself to, and another one, and another one, and another one. It is absolutely insatiable. One of the reasons there's no win in comparison is that just it keeps on going on and on and on and on, and it leaves you more and more miserable. The third end of comparison is that, number one, it's rooted in insufficiency. Number two, it is insatiable. And number three, it leaves you incomplete. It leaves you incomplete. At the end of the day, in comparing ourselves to other people or comparing or trying to ascertain God's faithfulness based on comparing ourselves to other people, it's just going to lead, lead us uh, and leave us incomplete. So there's a scripture that I've read uh, over and over again. It's probably the thing that has guided me in difficult moments and moments where I'm comparing myself to other people. And it's usually in the moments where I feel like God is, God is allowing other people to enjoy benefits that I wish I had. And here's a scripture that has comforted me and has redirected me. This is the soul therapy, that the stretching that I needed to pull me away from dysfunction. It comes from Ecclesiastes 4 and 6. It says, better is one handful with rest, with peace, with solace, than two handfuls with effort and a chasing after the wind. Better is one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort and a chasing after the wind. Now, this Hebrew imagery is very, very rich, and here's what he's saying. It's better to have one hand open, with the implication being that God can take out and put in whatever God chooses. It's better that you have everything in your life right now in another hand that is open, that is submitted, that says, God, you know what I want, but I'm going to allow you to put in and to take out what you choose. Better is one hand and the other hand open with, with peace, with rest, with tranquility, than to have two hands closed, clenching, running after everything that you want, that you demand that you have in order to feel like God is right and just, because you know what that is like, the writer says? It's like chasing after the wind. When have you ever caught the wind? When have you ever seen anybody catch the wind? It's impossible. So the writer is telling us, better is one hand, handful with rest, then two handfuls with effort and a chasing after the wind. When you see yourself comparing yourself, your daughter to someone else's daughter, your daughter, you know, graduated, thank you, Lordy, and somebody else's daughter is going to, you know, MIT or something, and you're starting to compare yourself to them, better is one hand with rest than two hands uh, clenched and a chasing after the wind. When you're comparing your life, your dating situation, your relationship situation to someone else's, you're chasing after the wind. Number one, you have no idea what's going on actually in their lives. You have no idea, none, what's actually going on in their lives. And you're judging your day-to-day -day life with their highlight reel. It's a chasing after the wind. So the first thing we see in the psalm, this first thing is Asaph's warning to us to not compare ourselves to other people, to not take your cues of God's faithfulness based on other people. And then Asaph says, he gets a reminder that God is just. And you see this in verse 16, it says, when I try to understand all of this, and all of this he is, this is after he has given us a list of how good people had it, uh, the wicked he says had it. He says, when I tried to understand all of this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. Indeed, you put them in slippery places you make them fall into ruin. Now, Asaph is using some strong language here about God's judgment. 
And what essentially Asaph is doing is that when he got into the presence of God, here's something that you see in Scripture. Anytime someone gets into the presence of God, they are automatically aware of God's holiness and their lack of holiness. One of the things you see in, in Scripture is that when God would, God's presence, God's actual presence would come into a room in a tangible way, people were terrified. In churches today, oh man, God's spirit was in the place. Why, why do we say that? That's because the music was great. That's because they sang your favorite song. There's nothing wrong with your favorite song. We got a banger coming up right after this message. <laughs> but don't confuse an emotional high with God's presence. In our, in what we see in this text, Asaph says that he got into God's presence. He's aware now of this weight. Scripture describes God's glory and God's presence as a weight. And now he senses God, this good and holy and perfect God, and the weight is on his shoulders. And he says, now I remembered, God, that you are just. You don't let things just go. Even though in the moment it appears that bad people are getting away with things, one day, like the writer of Hebrews says, all of us will have to give an account to him, and all of our lives will be laid bare before the eyes of whom we must give an account. Now, that's both assuring that God is not going to let uh, injustice just go indefinitely, but it's also humbling for us in our own lives to not play around with God. You know, to pastor a church in New York City, uh, we get people from all different types of walks of life and people who are new to church and to faith, and we're so grateful to have people uh, be a part of the story that God is writing here in New York City, and Renaissance is one very small part in what God has been doing in Harlem for hundreds of years. Um, one of the things that does challenge me, though, is it's not when people are new. It's the people who just treat church like, this is what I've always done. This is kind of like, I grew up in church. This is just kind of what I always do. And they end up having a cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity is adding Jesus to a life you've already chosen. That's a dangerous thing. Be hot or cold, Jesus says. Pick one. One of the most striking things about the New Testament, when you see Jesus talking to people, Jesus had no problem with people walking away. He actually preferred you left than to remain and be lukewarm. Now, this is a reminder that God is just. And this is a vision that Asaph has, that God is, he's a just and he's a holy God. And he doesn't play around with stuff that we think might be flippant. So it's also uh, a reminder to us that if we see injustice in our life, uh, to not give up hope. Uh, one of my favorite icons is Fannie Lou Hamer, and Fannie Lou Hamer is a giant. She was a giant. Um, there's so many things going on today when I, when I think about um, the stuff that people say and, you know, keyboard killers on Twitter, and I think about people, faithful saints like Fannie Lou Hamer who fought in the civil rights movement, and in every words, every respect was a giant. And one of the things that made Fannie Lou Hamer so amazing is that she never gave up hope that God was just and that God was gonna make all things right. There's an account in her life where she was uh, really harmed physically and potentially even sexually by uh, some, some officers, some cops uh, after some protest. And when she got out of prison, when she got out of jail, she looked at those cops and says, have you ever thought about what you're gonna say when you meet God. She believed in the justice of God and that kept her on a path. And a lot of people in here who are justice minded, a lot of times we forget that God is eternal and God is just. 
and one day everybody's going to have to give an account, and that's going to keep us from being concerned about what's happening in the moment. So number one, it's a, it's a, a, a warning not to compare ourselves, and two, it's a reminder. And three, this psalm gives us some peace and some real solace. And this is the stretching piece that I talked about in the soul physical therapy that's going to push us and stretch us in hopefully some good ways, not to a point of breaking, but to a point of healing. Here's what the author says. He says, yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge, so I can tell all about all, so I can tell all about, about all you do. I want to read verse 28 again, partially because I can't read today. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, so I can tell about all you do. A lot of times when you pray the Psalms, you'll find yourself making declarations that you don't actually believe yet. How many of us could truly say, but as for me, God's presence is my good? Think about the things that you want right now. Is God's presence the good that you truly are seeking after? Years ago, I, I was listening to a sermon about heaven and the preacher got up on stage and was saying, imagine your favorite food. Now imagine your favorite people, all the loved ones you've lost and long to see around and be with for eternity. Imagine the favorite thing you can do, the favorite location. If Jesus were not there and you had everything else, would it still be heaven? And for a lot of us, I think the answer would be yes, if we kept it all the way live. That if we really had just everything we want, Jesus, it'd be nice to be there, but he is not the end goal of our lives. He is not the passion of our hearts. His presence is not our good. The thing about God's presence is that we are, we are always unaware of the things that are the most constant. Fish are completely unaware of water. You are completely unaware of air and oxygen. You haven't thought about it until just now I said something. Maybe you think about it more now because you have masks on and your breath might stink uh, underneath it. But we are always unaware of the things that are the most constant which means that we are constantly surrounded and in God's presence, we just lack the awareness to appreciate it. And what the psalm is doing is he's inviting us to redirect our hearts and our minds and to make declarations and to reorient our lives like a good physical therapist to, to snap things back into place, to turn our eyes away from our left and to the right and back up to God. Now, I want to pray for us right now before we encounter and move into a time of worship that God's presence would be the good, good that we seek, that being God, with God and God alone, would be enough. Uh, Heavenly Father, there's so many different times in my life where, to be perfectly honest, I don't live like you are enough. It doesn't feel to me like you are enough. Lord, it's because I'm completely unaware of your presence and all that that means. I'm unaware of the depth of your love, the, how profound your grace is, how beautiful you are. And Lord, I get sidetracked by looking to the left and to the right. Father, forgive us for comparing our lives to others. Forgive us for judging your faithfulness based on how we see other people doing. Lord, we want a better way. Redirect our hearts and our minds to a gospel-centered truth that points us back to the cross of Jesus, 
that points us back to your goodness and your glory. Lord, as we make declarations in song and in word and in scripture and in prayer, we pray that they would take roots in our hearts. Lord, the seeds that are being sown in our lives, we pray that they would, you would water them and you would make them grow so that we would, we would reflect your truths. Do it in our lives, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.